You're listening to a resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. It is our joy to glorify God by treasuring Jesus in the preaching of His Word. We pray this resource will be a tool used to aid in your relationship with Christ in addition to your local church. Blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. And so let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 20, verses 9 through 18. Luke chapter 20, verses 9 through 18. And, um, and uh, let's focus on the Word of God now for this time together as we look at it together. You want to grab a Bible for sure. So grab one in the seat pocket in front of you if you don't have one. Or you can look at it one um, uh, on your phone. Or um, you're going to want to have uh, look at your neighbor's Bible, but you're definitely going to want to look at a Bible as you um, as we walk through this, because that's going to be um, uh, the majority of our time is going to be spent looking at God's Word intently and asking that He would change us through this. And uh, and so um, let, let's look at this. And uh, I want to mention one thing. I do want to encourage all the men in the room um, to sign up for that um, brief little. Um, one night conference, the need for men to lead. Um, I think one of the questions that um, I know the church is asking very often is, where are all the leaders? Um, where are all the men who lead, who take initiative, who think about the needs of their families and, and the church and, um, and step up? Um, statistically, um, most women are the ones who would initiate that uh, before the men would. And um, we, we really want to see a culture of men who would step up, see what God's word says about their responsibility and, um, and lead. Um, and so we'd love for you to be a part of that. And I think God's word will really speak to us in that way. So I want to make sure that you sign up for that. All right, Luke chapter 20, verses 9 through 18. Luke 20, 9 through 18. And God's got a lot to teach us this morning. Um, it's not very complicated, um, but it's, um, it's going to be very helpful for us. So let's read Luke chapter 20, verses 9 through 18. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. What shall I do? I will send my beloved son, perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir, let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And then will the owner of that vineyard, what then will the owner of that vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants 
and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. These are some pretty serious words, huh? And as we look at it, these are the words of the Lord Jesus. And let me just tell you what the main point is of this text up front so you understand what's being said here, okay? What we're seeing in this is how far, the point that Jesus is making here, it's very clear. The the point is here, how far the Israel leaders will go in their rejection of him. And it will be murder. And... Then we will see also here the consequences of that rejection. It's pretty clear here that this is what is being said. You don't have to look very far or deep to to understand this. And I've titled this sermon then, The Coming Killing of the Son of God. It's a prophecy looking ahead, told in a parable about the coming murder or killing of Christ. Jesus is telling the people, how far this rejection will go. And it will go all the way to a murder, a killing. And this is very clear as to why this is happening. And this rejection is in direct correlation with the fact that Jesus is not who they want him to be. And what they want is very clear here. It's the inheritance of Israel. These leaders want the control and the inheritance of Israel. And therefore, Jesus is a threat to that. They're not considering whether or not he's the truth, whether or not he is the Messiah, whether or not he's the Christ. They're deliberating about how his messianic fulfillment will affect their lives. So they're not looking for the truth. They're just filtering everything through how it will affect how they want to live. And so they're not looking objectively at Jesus' messianic fulfillment. They're looking at how it will affect the desire for their lives and specifically to have control of Israel and to have the inheritance of Israel. That's what these leaders are looking for. They want the control of Israel. They want the inheritance of Israel. And Jesus is a threat to that. And so they reject this Messiah, and they will go so far in their idolatry that they will kill him. And that's pretty um, startling, But it's not too startling if you think about it. Men and women now will go so far as to reject Christ their entire life. They will turn their backs on their own family. They will lie from the pulpit. They will make up a whole new philosophy of religion. And ministry. All because 
they want the control and the inheritance of this world and in this life. And they will go so far as to reject Christ all the way till the time that they see God, not because he's not true, not because his gospel isn't true, not because he doesn't truly provide the way to salvation, but because he's not exactly who they want him to be. And he doesn't serve their lives. And so this might seem startling, but it's actually not too far-fetched for us to imagine. These are serious words. The passion text, now that Jesus is is heading to the cross. We're in the midst of this, and there's really not one happy note from here to the end of the book until the resurrection. It's, it's, pretty, um, it's pretty serious. It's pretty intense. So let me just tell you how we got here, because I think it's going to make a lot of sense to you. And then we're just going to walk through this text, and I think that'll be pretty clear as well. Remember that the journey to Jerusalem ended in chapter 19, verse 27. And that was the, uh, the end of the journey and what is called the triumphal entry, right? Well, up until that point, uh, up until the time the journey started, Jesus is proving his deity. That's what the first nine chapters of Luke is about. He is proving his messiahship. It's witness after witness, testimony after testimony about Jesus being the Christ. He's the messiah. That's what the first nine chapters are about. And then he begins this journey to Jerusalem in chapter 9, verse 51, training and teaching the disciples. Uh, That's what he's doing on that journey. And then in 1928, he enters Jerusalem, and we begin what is called this passion narrative. And this, as we talked about last week, is the last week of Jesus' life. This is the last week of his life. This is right before his crucifixion. We are on Wednesday currently in this text. He's crucified on what day? Friday. We're two days ahead. And in 1928, when he enters Jerusalem, um, you know, the point is here that he is, he is holding nothing back and rebuking Israel's unbelief. He is rebuking Israel's unbelief. That's what preaching is, reproving, rebuking, and exhorting, of course. And the time has come. The fury of the leaders has been built up, and they're going to kill him. And so we're on Wednesday here, and um, from John's gospel and Mark's gospel, remember, we piece together all of these these days, right? And Jesus went to the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus six days before, which was Saturday. The next day, which was Sunday, a crowd came to Bethany, to Lazarus' house, Mary's house, Martha's house, to see Jesus, right, because of the testimony of Lazarus raising from the dead, and they planned to kill him. It says at that point, although it was long established, um, back even Mark chapter three, verse six, here's what it says. The Pharisees went out immediately, held a council with the Herodians against him as to how to destroy him. So that's all the plan to kill him is all the way back in Mark chapter three, verse six. But we know that even especially while he's in Lazarus's house, Um, They're gathering around and they're seeking to to kill Jesus. And so all of this escalated after he rose, he raised Lazarus from the dead. John chapter 11, verse 53 says, after he raised Lazarus. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to what? 
death. John eleven fifty seven says, now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, let them know so they could do what? Arrest him. They were ready to kill him, um, but they couldn't find this opportunity. So he's at Mary, Martha, Lazarus's house, and that's Sunday, right? So he's in Bethany, and the leaders are trying to kill him. They're seeking for an opportunity. And then we see that John tells us the next day, which would be Monday, Jesus enters Jerusalem. The triumphal entry was on Monday. And so John tells us that, uh, um, that the crowds were there, and uh, the Pharisees are irate, and, and the crowd is going after him because he raised Lazarus from the dead. Mark then tells us the next day, which is Tuesday, he curses the fig tree, right? And then the next day, Wednesday, Jesus teaches a lesson on the fig tree. He cleanses the temple. Um, he challenge, they challenge his authority, and, and that's what day we're on currently. We're two days. So, so at this point, in Luke chapter 20, verse 9, where we started, they just finished challenging Jesus' authority about cleaning the temple, Okay, cleansing the temple, which actually, I'm sorry, was the day before. Now, what they're saying to Jesus is this. Who gave you this authority? Who gave you this authority to cleanse the temple, to, to teach these things, to preach this way? Right? Who gave you this authority? They want to kill him. He, he's speaking blasphemy because he's making himself equal with God. Right? And then Jesus, what he does, listen now, he exposes the reason for their rejection of him. Remember that? When we spoke on verses 1 through 8 in chapter 20, he exposes the reason. And the reason they're rejecting him is not because he's not the truth, because he's not the Messiah. They're not seeking the truth. They're not seeking Christ. They're not seeking salvation. They don't understand their sinful condition, their need to be saved. They don't understand their need to repent of sin. They're not seeking him because he's not exactly what they want him to be. And Jesus exposes that. In verses 21 through 8, Jesus says, you tell me. You tell me who my ministry is from. And they're deliberating. If we say it's from God, we're going to have to follow him. If we say it's from man, the people are going to stone us. And all they're thinking about is their own inheritance in Israel, their own control in Israel, their own power, their own um, prestige, their own political uh, position, their own power. That's all they're thinking about. And so they want to fit their theology to make it agreeable with their idols. Their theology, they're making agreeable with their idolatry. Instead of looking at the truth of who Christ is and what he came to do, they're making um, their outlook agreeable with what their sinful desires are. And that's not far from what we see today. He exposes that they're not seeking the truth. They're seeking their own idols. And so Jesus here says with finality and judgment, I'm not going to listen now. Listen in. I'm not going to explain myself to you anymore. That was a judgment statement at the end of verses 1 through 8. I'm not going to explain. Listen now, I'm not going to explain myself to you anymore because you're committed to misunderstanding me. You're committed to, uh, to what is false. And so, and so this is what's going on at this point. You're committed to how this is going to affect your life. 
Um, you're committed to serving yourself and you want me and my teaching to fit your life. And so this just points to the depravity and blindness and idolatry and self-righteousness and pride, thinking that they're just good enough before God on their own. God will just accept them the way that they are. That's self-righteousness. Jesus is helping them see, no, you have a sinful condition and you need saving. And so Jesus is exposing all of this. Now, when we get to this passage here, Jesus comes out of that rebuke and he looks around and he tells a parable. And this parable is pointing to how far these people will go in their rejection of him to serve themselves. Their idolatry is so strong, they will go all the way to murdering the son of God to maintain their position. And like I said, We see this pattern today. People will lie. People will create whole theologies. People will create cults. People will teach new doctrines. People will reject families. Um, they um, They will go far in order to maintain the desires that they have for this life and their prosperity and their control and reject Christ because he's a threat to them. And so this is what is happening. People will even today invent new versions of Jesus. Uh, you know, I was out here the other day and I, I heard someone saying, this, you know, this is what God is like. This is what the church should be like. This is what uh, we should follow. This is how things should go. Isn't this right? And people were standing around this man and saying, yes, yes, it's exactly how, how God is and, and what he feels and, and what, you know, how you should follow him and what the church should be. And I'm sitting there listening and, and I'm thinking to myself, that is not at all what God is like. That's not at all. Where did you get that? That's not at all what the Bible says. And so people will make up their own way in order to fit God to meet their own desires. And these people are going so far here as to kill the Son of God to serve their own life. And so Jesus is gonna expose this, and we're gonna see three sections of this parable that are gonna just clarify all of this so you can see this main point for yourself. The first thing that we're gonna see, number one, in verses nine through 16 is the parable. This is a parable that Jesus is speaking about. Um, The second thing that we're going to see in this section is the point, meaning the the point of the parable. And then the third thing that we're going to see in here in verse 18 is the punishment, which is the result of what Jesus is speaking about. So number one, the parable, verses 9 through 16. Number two, the point, verse 17. And number three, the punishment, Verse 18, it's pretty clear. So let's start with the first one, the parable, verses nine through 16. And I'll read this again just to help you become familiar with it. And he began to tell the parable, the, the people, this parable. So this notice here, this is right out of what just happened, okay? Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. I'm not gonna explain myself to you anymore. You're committed to misunderstanding me, right? And then right after this, same day, same event, He began to tell the people this parable. 
A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And when they, and then will the owner of the vineyard, um, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. And so the parallel accounts to this is Matthew 21, verses 33 through 46, Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. We're going to um, use those to supplement um, this section here. But a parable is a story that comes alongside a truth. That's what the word literally means, a story alongside of a truth. Sometimes that story was to reveal that truth, and at other times that story was to conceal that truth, depending on who Jesus was speaking to. And every time when Jesus would speak in a parable, um, it was familiar to the life of the people. They would understand something because they experienced it in their culture. And so there were aspects that were common to Israel that are here, and that's very clear. And so Matthew, let me tell you this, says that before he told them this parable, he told them another parable. And then after they heard it, um, he then told them this parable. Um, and the parable there is about the fact that uh, people hadn't changed their mind about Christ. And that's exactly what he's saying here. People are committed to themselves. They're committed to their own self. They're committed to serving themselves. And they're committed to God matching up with that. And they haven't changed their minds. Um, they hear the truth. They heard John the Baptist preaching. And they didn't change their minds based on the truth. And so Jesus, it says in Matthew, told them another parable. And this is the parable. And so it's very clear. Jesus is coming out of this teaching about the fact that they're rejecting him based on how it affects their lives. In Matthew's account, he tells them a parable about how even after hearing the truth, they fail to change their minds. And then here he's telling this parable as to how far this rejection will go, which is murder. And so we see here, it begins, verse nine begins with and. It's a connection to the previous section, right? As discussed, when you see that, when you see that, um, those words, you, you have to take notice. So, therefore, and, because, but. Um, they connect us to things, right? So here he's telling them this parable, and it's to illustrate how far they will go in their rejection of him. Now, what does he say here? And he began to tell the people this parable. In the other accounts, we know that this is not only to the people, it's also to the leaders. They're all there because the leaders respond at the end. So it's to everybody it's pointing to Israel, right? It's, he's speaking of Israel. He said, a man planted a vineyard. Now, let me explain this along the way, okay? We'll talk about um, just the, the, the story of it, the metaphor of it, and then we'll talk about what it's representing, the truth. And so a man planted a vineyard, right? Why would you plant a vineyard? Well, you desire crop, you desire fruit, 
You desire um, to, for it to yield some kind of um, uh, fruit in its season. A man, he planted this crop, just look at verse nine, a, a vineyard, right? Um, he, he planted a crop of fruit for his own, his own possessions. Matthew tells us that he put a fence around it. He also tells us that he dug a wine press in it. Matthew also tells us that he put a tower in the vineyard. Um, he, he tells us that, uh, that this vineyard had protection. It had blessing. Um, it had enjoyment, this vineyard and this tower. And he let it out, it says here in, Mar- in Luke's account, to who? Verse 9. Tenants. That's um, the fact that he leased it out, literally. He leased it out. So he, gives this, he plants this vineyard, he puts a tower, he digs a wine press, blessing, protection, and he leases it out. And then he went to a, another country, it says, for a, a long while, right? There you go. Another country for a long while. And, um, and these tenants are vine growers. Listen now, these tenants are farmers, um, they are the ones who would rent out the, the vineyard and they would pay back a percentage of its fruit to the owner, to the landowner of the harvest. And um, this is just love and grace that they would be able to keep some of it. Um, they had a wonderful vineyard to live in. They had protection, they had blessing and there was requirements from the owner. And the journey, this is pretty common in Israel. The owner would go on a long journey. I, I mean, his, his vineyard would produce fruit while he was gone. And, um, and so th- this is pretty clear. Now, what does this represent? In verse 9 um, that we just um, read and looked at. Well, it's, it's very clear. It represents God as the master or the owner of the vineyard. Israel is the vineyard, the people he has planted and desiring to produce fruit, right? Isaiah 5, 7 says, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is who? The house of Israel. The men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. And so the vine growers then, uh, the tenants, are the religious leaders of Israel. The religious leaders of Israel, the people who are leading his people spiritually. Um, The leaders uh, that are appointed, Deuteronomy 1 talks about this. Deuteronomy 16 says this, you shall appoint judges and officials in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes and they shall judge the people with righteousness and with judgment. And so listen now, in the Old Testament, God set up priests and judges and kings. In the New Testament, the Jews set up the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the the, uh, scribes, the Sanhedrin, the high priests, and so on. And that's the specific focus here. And then the journey here in verse 9, the long while is the Old Testament history of Israel. The Old Testament history of Israel. And so God sets up This vineyard, who is Israel, he puts uh, spiritual leaders in charge, and then during that time, he's away. And so verse 10, 
When the time, what? Came. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty handed. The time came. It's, Mark says it was the season. Uh, Matthew said it was a season of fruit. It was harvest time. This was harvest time. And so the servant to the tenants, and this is pretty common. There's a slave. It's literally a slave. He would come, he would collect the harvest. He would collect the percentage, right, from them. And, um, and they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But here's what the tenants did. What'd they do to him? They beat him. And so they sent him away empty-handed. Now, this is a slave going on behalf of the owner. This is a common practice. This is normal. And, um, but now, listen, at this point, the listeners, the hearers, the people listening to Jesus, their ears would be perked because they would start to be outraged at what's happening in this story. This is not normal. What happens is the tenants, they do something unacceptable. They, instead of giving what is agreed upon, they beat. The Greek word means to literally remove skin. They remove skin of the servant. It was a terrible attack. It was illegal. It was disrespectful. It was irreverent. And the slaves here represent the Old Testament prophets of Israel that went, that were sent by God to call the people, the leaders, to produce fruit for God, to obey him, to turn, to love him, to respect him, to be holy, to follow him. And Israel, what did they do to the prophets? They killed them. They mistreated them. The vine growers, that's what they did to the slaves. Acts 7 says this, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? (laughs) We don't even know if there was any that they didn't. And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, the one whom you now betrayed and and murdered. And so verse 11, it says this, just follow along. He sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty handed, right? And this is just the owner of the vineyard. Listen now, just listen to this with great patience with great forbearance, with great mercy, with great persistence, over and over and over again, sending more slaves. You would think that at this point, that very night, he would come with a vengeance, and he had the right to do so, with justice. And he sends the messengers over and over and over and over again, The vine growers are profiting from God's, from the master's vineyard. And he patiently sends another representative, another slave. And this represents God continuing to send prophets after prophet after prophet to Israel and its leaders with only the same mistreatment happening over and over and over again. Well, he sends, verse 12, a third one. And he sent yet what? Verse 12, a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. 
God continued to send prophets to call his people to repent and to bear fruit and the same result. And Matthew says they beat, they killed, and they stoned. And then it says they did more than they did uh, uh, more than first, uh, more to the others than the first one. I mean, it just got progressively worse. But they did the same thing. Hebrews eleven thirty six through 38 says, others suffered mocking and flogging. Speaking of the, uh, of the Old Testament, the people in the Old Testament, they suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats. They were destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Uh, they wandered about the deserts, and um, in mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. This was the story of, the, of, of God's sent ones, right? Isaiah is, uh, tradition has it, probably the one who was sawn in two. You can read the book of Isaiah. I mean, it's just, a, it's just an awful tale. I mean, he, he calls the people to repent and um, there's not really one happy note in that whole thing either. Um, they reject him. Jeremiah, Jeremiah 38, tells us he's thrown in a pit. Ezekiel, he was, um, he was treated the same. He was attacked. Ezekiel 2, 6 through 7. Um, it says here, And you, son of man, be not afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words or uh, their briars, or thorns, though they're with you and you sit on scorpions, be not afraid of their words, nor dismayed at their looks, for they're a rebellious house. You shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or whether they refuse to hear. They're a rebellious house. Now, there's a reason why God's telling Jeremiah, I mean, Ezekiel, to keep going, because he's been treated unfair. Um, we have prophets who were punched in the face, who were killed, who were stoned to death, and God still in his patience sent prophet after prophet after prophet. Verse 13, he says then, the owner, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. Perhaps they will respect him. This is, this is the the owner doing the greatest thing that he could do to bring about this fruit and to bring about the, the repentance of, of, the, of the tenants. He sends another one, his beloved son. He says, perhaps or surely. And this is the Lord Jesus Christ, the heir. This represents Jesus Christ himself as the one who who has ownership of the vineyard, even himself. Matthew 17, five, what does it say? As he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud shadowed the voice from heaven. And it said, this is my what? Beloved son with whom I am well pleased. God sent his beloved son to bring about the repentance of Israel, to bring about the, um, the people recognizing their sinful condition repenting of their sin, trusting in the Messiah in Christ and his, his work on the cross to be saved. And, um, and here's what we 
see will happen here. Verse 14. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him. Now here, watch this, because it gives us insight. So that, what? The inheritance may be ours. This is very connected to the first eight verses of this chapter. They are questioning what they should do with Jesus because they want to serve themselves. How how is this going to work? We want the control of Israel. We want the inheritance of this city. We want to maintain the prosperity and the power. We are the leaders of Israel who want to have this for ourselves. They're not asking themselves whether or not this is true. They're asking themselves, how will this affect our lives? And so they're looking to make Jesus agreeable with their desires. And this is, you know, some people say, well, you know, if God would just come and and speak from heaven, I would believe that Jesus is real and God is real. If I saw this sign or that sign, no, you wouldn't, because there's plenty of people in the scriptures who saw it and didn't believe. And you have the word of God that tells you of all those miracles and signs that you can Read for yourself. The issue is not an intellectual issue for you. The issue is a moral issue. The reason that people don't believe is not because they can't understand if they sought it. It's because they don't want him to be their God. And so this is what Jesus is exposing here. And Jesus is speaking of how far they will go in their rejection of him, and that is murder. The leaders want Israel, and they will kill him. The law here in this parable in Israel at this time is that if something went unclaimed for three years, it would become the tenants. And so here's the tenants' plans. We're just going to reject the son. We're going to kill every slave that comes. Maybe the owner of the vineyard here will stop sending anybody. After three years, it will become whose? Ours. And I think it's pretty... um, Interesting that Jesus' ministry lasted three years. And in essence, they said the same thing. If we can reject this man and his ministry for three years, maybe Israel, the control, and the inheritance will become whose? Ours. Maybe God will stop sending it, these prophets, and we can have it our way. And so this is premeditated murder. This is how far they will go. Verse 14, this is the heir. Let us do what to him? Kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And so this is premeditated murder. This is a, they know exactly what they're doing. This speaks of the total depravity of man. Listen now. This is how, flesh, how far the flesh will go to maintain control of your own life. Don't underestimate sin and its power. This is how far the total depravity of man will take us. Not looking if things are right or honorable or true, but if they serve self, and we will even have no regard, we'll be blind uh, to our own sin. We'll um, leave churches. We will um, leave the faith. We will reject 
family members. We will build entire philosophies to our lives because God is simply convicting us and we don't wanna deal with it. Or God is calling us to his truth and we don't like it. People will go to the end of their lives still holding on to that rejection, even though it is clear that he is the truth. And so this is not the type of Messiah they want. They don't want this savior. They want to serve their idols, their wants, their desires, their expectations of God were, were, were particular. They had a particular outlook. Um, they wanted to maintain their power, their self-love, their tradition, their experience, their philosophy. This is an authority issue. The question is this, who's the authority of truth? Is it you or is it, is it him? And when you find out what he says, if he's the authority, then you only have one option and you submit to it, regardless of how it will affect your life here on earth. And so it didn't matter what Jesus said. They were committed to denying him. They wanted control. God didn't match their expectations. He didn't want them to be the Lord. He, they didn't want him to be the Lord over their lives. And so what they do with Jesus is what is told here, verse 15. They did what? They threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. They threw him out. I mean, this is literally what happened. This is pretty particular. They threw him out of Israel. They rejected him as the Messiah. They killed him outside the what? The city by the Romans. This is exactly what will happen. What will they do? Right? And so they, they throw him outside the city. And, um, and so then the question is asked, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? What will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Now here is the result that they brought upon themselves for rejecting the truth. And, um, and it's pretty just straightforward, clear. Verse 16, he will come and he will destroy those tenants and he will give the vineyard to others. Matthew says that the hearers gave an answer. They said, um, he will put those wretches to a miserable death. This is Matthew's account, the parallel account. And he's gonna let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give fruit in their season. And this is the appropriate response. And what this represents here is this. It represents judgment for sin and for the rejection of the son. And this is very interesting. So lock into this. It also represents that he will give the ownership, the leadership of Israel to others. And those others will be his apostles, his disciples. They are seeking to maintain the control of Israel, the inheritance of Israel, what Jesus is saying is not only will you be destroyed, but the very thing you're trying to maintain will be taken away from you. It will be taken away from you. I'm going to set the tone. My gospel will set the tone. My disciples will set the tone. I'm the standard. I'm the truth. My followers will maintain the leadership 
of Israel in the sense that they will have the true message of salvation. The very thing that you're trying to maintain will be taken away from you. I'm going to give it to others. And this is exactly what he's, he's saying here. Matthew 21 says, therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its what? Its fruits. These are the followers of Christ who will have the truth. They'll have the message. It's the ones who are true to my word, who understand my gospel and my truth. That's who will have the leadership of Israel. And really, it will be Jesus who has the leadership of Israel. And that's who he's going to, what he's going to speak about in just a second. But this transition's already been made. And what Jesus is saying here is by the rejection of the son, no matter why you're doing it, even if it's for your own inheritance and control, no matter why, it doesn't matter the reason, you will be destroyed. And then the inheritance will go to the people who represent me and follow me. Um, Matthew 13 11, it says about the apostles, to you it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom, but it's not been given to them, right? It's to the disciples, the apostles. They wrote the New Testament scriptures by the power of the Holy Spirit. They'll set the tone and the practice of what it means to, to be right with God. Paul will take it to the Gentiles. It will be others who have this message. It, even in, down the line, it will be future pastors and teachers and church leaders who will carry on the leadership of God's true people. Those who will, will receive him will be the ones who lead God's people. And so by now, verse 16, it says that they, it's very clear that they get this. But I want you to keep this, keep the theme in mind because Jesus is gonna speak more about who's gonna have this leadership, but they get it. When they heard this, they said, what? Surely not. Now you might say, well, do they get it there? Or are they just saying, no, this is a bad story. That, that can never happen. What are they saying here? Well, it's, it's pretty clear because in Matthew and Mark's account, it said that they perceived that the parable was against them. They got it at this point. And what they're saying is that's unthinkable. We're the leaders of Israel. We're the, we're the descendants of Abraham. We don't need to be saved. We have control of Israel. Right? There's, that's impossible that that would happen to us. Right? That's impossible that, that we would be judged and not know the Lord and that be taken away from us. I mean, the same things that... Matthew 7 says, many will say on that day to God, that's impossible that you would cast us out. And then we prophesy in your name. We cast out many demons in your name. We did many healings in your name. That would be impossible for you to take that away from us. And he says, I never what? Knew you. And so here's the point that Jesus is making, verse 17. That's this is point two, and these two are pretty quick. But he looked directly at them, meaning he looked them straight in the eyes. He's serious as a heart attack at this point. And he said this, what is then that 
that is written. The stone that the builders rejected has become the what? Cornerstone. He's just saying this. That's exactly what's gonna happen. You should know it because you read the scriptures. And this is speaking about the fact that I will be the standard. It's exactly what's gonna be happening. What will happen? It's gonna be taken away from you. The stone that the builders rejected, that's Christ, will become the cornerstone. The, the cornerstone is a stone in a building that sets the, the, the course for everything. And so it's gonna be taken away from you and everything is gonna come under me. Everything is gonna be by my standard, by my truth, by my way, not by yours. It's gonna be taken away from you. It's gonna be given to me and as he already said, to my followers. And so this is long written. This is exactly what will be done. He's speaking of an Old Testament reference in Psalm 118. And I love when Jesus exposits the Old Testament. He's good at it. And, um, and so this is in a spiritual sense. The quote is Psalm 118, 22, and it says this, the stone that the builders rejected has become the what? That's, so he's, that's what he's quoting. And the, the scripture at that point, it's very interesting because in Psalm 118, when that's written, that stone is Israel. And they would rejoice over that. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, meaning the stone that the other nations have rejected. Israel would become the cornerstone. They would rejoice at that. And yet, because of their rejection, that has ultimate messianic fulfillment, that Israel would be the very ones who reject the stone and that it would be Christ who becomes the cornerstone. They thought it was about themselves. And Jesus is undermining their whole mindset at this point. He's saying this, that the stone, that's Christ. The builders, that's Israel, right? The builders are Israel. Um, they would, um, the, the, the stone, they would reject the stone of Christ and he'd become the cornerstone. And as I mentioned, the cornerstone is the most important, central, pivotal part of any building. It makes everything else straight and not crooked. And this is going to become the one who they rejected will become the one who is the only way. And so his followers himself will become the straight, the central, the important, the foundational, the true representatives of God. They will be the standard. He will be the standard for righteousness. His truth will be the standard for truth. You can't just make up your own way and invent your own way or reject the Christ because it doesn't meet up with your way and then say, you know, I'm going to maintain the power and the inheritance, the control that I'm, I'm seeking. Jesus is saying that will be taken away. I'm the only way. I'm the truth. And, uh, and everything falls in line with me and my message. And that's what Jesus is making, making clear here. And... Um, it's, he's looking directly at them. He's looking directly at them. And so the point is, is that they will lose control and they will be um, crushed. And that's what leads us really to the third point, which is pretty simple. Verse 18, and that's the punishment. Uh, 
He says, everyone who falls on this stone or that stone, speaking of himself, will be what? Broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. This is just the consequences of rejecting the Messiah. Of the fact that you're not agreeing with his truth, even though it's right in front of you, because you want it to be agreeable with your desires and how it will affect your life or your outlook. Your theology wanting to make it agreeable with your own desires in your heart. It's a moral issue. But he's saying either way, I'm the truth and I'm the way. And my truth is the truth. And anyone who stumbles over this truth will receive judgment. That's how it's going to be either way. This is, this is Jesus saying, everyone who falls on this stone, Romans 9 tells us that he's the stumbling block, right? Romans 9, 32 through 33, they stumbled over the what? Stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying a stone in Zion, a stone of stumbling and a rock of what? Offense. It's the stone that saves. If you see him as the truth, the one who comes to take away your sin as the way in which you are right with God and his truth is the truth, you, that, that's, a, that's a wonderful stone. But it has become to those who don't see their own sinful condition and want their lives to be um, their own lives and stay in control. It's become a rock of offense, a stumbling stone. They trip over it. I don't want this. Christ. I don't want this God. I don't want this Messiah. Those who are self-righteous, who think they'll be accepted by God simply because of, uh, of their own goodness. And so here's what Jesus says here at the end. That unbelief will result in judgment. It literally says everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. It's, um, they're going to be crushed. It's just two ways of saying it here broken into pieces, um, literally, um, they will be made into dust and they will be crushed. This is destruction. This is judgment. And um, at the end of Matthew and Mark, it says that at, after he finished saying these things, they sought to arrest him immediately. And so this is climaxing here. So the question as we close is... How far are you going to reject Christ and his truth? Understanding that it, it, do, it really doesn't matter what you think about it. He is the truth. And his word is true. And he's the standard. Whether you come by it or not. But everyone who rejects him will face judgment because of their sin that they've brought upon themselves. And so my encouragement to you is to not reject him. And not only in your salvation, but especially in your salvation, but also in your sanctification. There are people who live their whole lives rejecting the truth that's right in front of them because they just don't want it to be true. And my encouragement to you is to not do that. Take God's word for what it says and follow it. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and your word is just clear to us. And I pray by your grace that we would submit to it.
Help us to submit to it. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to submit to your word. That we wouldn't desire to make you and your truth agreeable with our desires. But that we would take your truth for what it says. We know that this really sits on both sides of the coin. Some people reject you because you're offensive to them. You're not, your words are not loving enough. And their, and their um, definition of love. Your words are not, surely they couldn't be true. Surely you meant something else. Uh, surely there's no uh, destruction for those who reject you. Uh, they reject you because they couldn't conceive that what you say is, and what you mean is what you mean. And there's the other side. God, that people reject you because they really want everything in this life. And you tell us, what does it profit a man, Matthew 16, to gain the whole world and yet forfeit our souls? God, help us not to think so short-term that we would reject your truth only to have this life. But help us to, to see you for who you are and help us to submit to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.